From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. As regions that recently voted to join Russia come under fresh attacks from Kiev, we air two more excerpts from Ukraine on Fire, the Oliver Stone-produced movie about the 2014 U.S.-backed coup in Ukraine. The situation in Crimea is being presented as a, a Russian invasion. And again, nobody who looks at this seriously and looks at the poll numbers, some of the poll numbers done by the U.S. government agencies themselves, showing that the people of Crimea preferred being part of Russia. And for this month's episode of The F Word on Fascism, I asked journalist Jackie Lukman if Americans would recognize or do recognize that the United States is devolving into a fascist state. Curtailing of actual freedom of the press, curtailing of rights to assembly, curtailing of the ability to express opposition to the government or the state, those things are already happening in this country. All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital for October 21st, 2022. I'm Esther Averam. Well, in their current proxy war against Russia, leaders of NATO member states have frequently advocated for regime change in Russia, targeting the administration of Vladimir Putin. But now, with their economies reeling, these same NATO leaders are the ones circling the regime change drain. UK Prime Minister Liz Truss announced her resignation on Thursday after only 44 days in office, and she leaves amid an economic crisis made worse by her plan to cut taxes on the rich while at the same time trying to subsidize Brits for the global fallout from sanctions on Russian energy and other exports. Jeremy Corbyn, former Labour MP, tweeted that the debacle of Truss's short-lived premiership is, quote, a symptom of a broken economic system and a trashed democracy. We will continue to lurch from crisis to crisis, and ordinary people will pay the price until we finally build a society for the many, not the few, end quote, Corbyn said. In France, there is, in effect, a national strike that started with refinery workers and spread to nuclear plants, railway and postal workers, nurses, and teachers. 140,000 people marched in Paris on Sunday, October 14th, demanding an emergency freeze on the prices of life staples like groceries, rent, and energy, and more resources to address the climate crisis. President Emmanuel Macron, who lost his majority in the French National Assembly, during the last election, is also being threatened with a vote of no confidence if he ignores the demands of the people and tries to still implement controversial neoliberal policies. Jean-Luc Mélenchon, the head of the left-wing party France Unbowed and an organizer of the October 14th protest, told the mass gathering, quote, another life is possible, free from the spoils of profit. Another world is possible, free from the frenzy of capitalist productivism. What we are doing today, what we are designing, is a new popular front, end quote. And many wonder how much longer EU foreign policy advisor Joseph Borrell will keep his job after a recent racist rant in a speech at the inauguration of the European Diplomatic Academy of Brussels. He described Europe as a, quote unquote, garden superior to the rest of the world's barbaric, quote unquote, jungle. Ben Norton, editor of Multipolarista.com and a friend of the show, said in his response to Burrell, quote, The EU foreign policy chief failed to mention that for more than 500 years, European colonialist powers have run the most violent empires in human history, overseeing mass genocides, racialized chattel slavery, ethnic cleansing and constant wars, end quote. On the ground in Ukraine, Russia said that four civilians were killed and 10 injured Thursday in a missile strike by Ukraine on a civilian crossing of the Dnieper River in Kherson region. The strikes came after Russian President Vladimir Putin declared martial law in the four regions that voted to join the Russian Federation. Martial law was called in anticipation of attacks from Kiev. In this hemisphere, the Black Alliance for Peace and other individuals and groups are claiming a victory after the coalition requested that Russia and China oppose the Biden administration's U.N. Security Council resolution for another Western invasion of Haiti. 
the Security Council delayed consideration of the vote. The alliance said that the delay is a, quote, critical pause on a reckless, poorly thought out and potentially disastrous intervention into Haiti, end quote. Professor Jamima Pierre, a coordinator of the Black Alliance for Peace team on Haiti, spoke to Voices with Vision on WPFW Pacifica Radio in Washington, D.C. For the first time, I think our letters and protests made a difference because the Chinese representative, this is the first time he mentioned an illegitimate government. He's just like, how could you send a foreign force into a country where the president, where the leadership is not legitimate? Wouldn't that cause more violence? And that's exactly the question that we should be asking. And then the Russian um, representative said something similar. It's like, well, how would you send this when um, there hasn't even been the urgency to solve the assassination um, of the Haitian president by foreign troops? And so they both raised these issues and basically pushed for the vote to be postponed. Pierre said that many of the street demonstrations are uprisings of dissent and not quote-unquote gang violence, as depicted by corporate media. She added that the unelected prime minister, Ariel Henry, appointed by colonial governments, should not be authorized to invite foreign military in the country to suppress dissent. In other national news, two weeks after a 22-year-old black woman escaped from the Excelsior Springs, Missouri home, of Timothy Marion Hazlitt Jr., a man whom she accuses of kidnapping, beating, and raping her. Police said they have found no evidence of the other women she said Hazlitt killed. Lieutenant Ryan Dowdy of the Excelsior Springs Police told reporters outside Hazlitt's home this week that, quote, it was readily apparent that she had been held against her will for a significant period of time, end quote. He said investigators are still processing evidence taken from Hazlitt's home and that the investigation is ongoing. According to police documents viewed by local reporters, the woman called TJ said she escaped from a room in the man's basement and that TJ went to multiple homes to seek help while Hazlitt took his child to school. Her escape was weeks after community leaders said they told authorities that they believed a potential predator was targeting black women and girls in the Kansas City area. Authorities from the Kansas City Police Department initially called the reports of a serial killer targeting black women, quote unquote, completely unfounded. This week, members of the black community held a vigil for women they believe are still missing. Michelle Watley, founder of Shirley's Kitchen Cabinet, an organization dedicated to empowering black women in leadership, said that the area, both sides of the state line between Kansas and Missouri, are at the center of sex and human trafficking and that, quote, there must be urgency when addressing claims of missing black people. Because of this, our community has to be the first line of defense, end quote, she said. U.S. Supreme Court Associate Justice Amy Coney Barrett rejected a challenge to the Biden administration's student debt cancellation plan on Thursday. Barrett declined to consider an appeal by Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, a conservative law firm that previously drew attention for investigating claims of widespread voter fraud in the 2020 presidential election and coming up empty. Numerous right wing groups have claimed that President Joe Biden lacks the legal authority to implement his plan under which between 10,000 and 20,000 in federal student loan debt per borrower can be canceled. The official online portal to apply for forgiveness at studentaid.gov is now live. And in D.C., a bright spot for organizers, people fighting for meeting human needs rather than fighting against our rights being taken away. There's a movement to support the construction of social housing, publicly owned mixed income housing that generates affordability by reinvesting rent payments and lowering costs for tenants and establishing more social housing across the city. Janice Lewis-George, one of the D.C. council members who introduced the related Green New Deal for Housing Act, said that, quote, social housing is the critical missing piece in confronting our severe affordable housing crisis. By putting more of the affordable housing that is so desperately needed in D.C., while aligning our housing policies with the urgent need to mitigate climate change, end quote. Will Merrifield, a housing advocate who ran for office on a platform supporting social housing, Explained in a meeting this week with community organizers 
the benefits of moving to social housing modeled after such a program in Vienna, Austria. It's a much more efficient way to build housing than we do right now, which the way we do it, we give a bunch of public resources to developers to build luxury apartments. We depend on, we bank on corporate largesse trickling down and somehow providing the affordable units needed. And we see that's been a total disaster. So social housing is a much more efficient way to build housing. There is a plan to consider a former Marriott hotel in Northwest DC for social housing, because unlike so much of the current vacant commercial real estate, it already has plumbing installed that can serve many units. The Party for Socialism and Liberation is holding a launch for the social housing movement on Friday, October 21st at 5.30 p.m. at the Justice Center, 617 Florida Avenue in Northwest D.C. And those are headlines and happenings. Stay with us. Now, let's get to our excerpts this week from Ukraine on Fire, which pick up where we left off last week and gives a taste of some of the violence on the Maidan during the the violent overthrow of the elected government in Ukraine in 2014, and then how that violence spread to the areas now uh, under attack in eastern Ukraine, where the majority uh, Russian-speaking population lives, and that was targeted by the new right-wing regime. For weeks, this European capital has been the scene of a violent uprising. Today, the bloodiest day yet. The protesters are pushing up towards the government district, armed here with Molotov cocktails, but we saw handguns and shotguns too. There are casualties on both sides. Well, she's just said that there are six dead people up there. Not just injured, dead. They say they've been hit by snipers. 20 February, and here again, we meet our old acquaintance from Narodny Ruch, Andriy Paruvi, who is at the peak of his glory as self-proclaimed Commandant of Maidan, which basically means the leader of the radical opposition. The protesters were filmed leading a long line of riot police away. It's not clear where they were taking them. 67 officers are currently reported to be missing. 14 policemen dead and 43 wounded. Earlier, from inside the protest camp, the opposition leader Vitaly Klitschko urged his supporters to stay put. Each of you here should stay strong in spirit, he said, because we're not going anywhere. Like in 2004 during the Orange Revolution, international leaders felt it necessary to intervene and bring both sides to the negotiating table. The Ukrainian president and the leaders of the anti-government protests there have agreed on a truce. The truce was to give talks between President Yanukovych and the opposition a chance. Just like in 2004, the opposition, or at least its radical faction, the right sector, headed by Dmitry Yarosh, had no intention on fulfilling its part of the bargain. The opposition leaders left saying they may have found a way to end the bloodshed, but they wanted to take the conclusions from their meeting to the people. 
it was soon apparent that the people were not happy. At the same time, Kiev was saying its last goodbyes to the victims of the massacre. It was also welcoming those who came to power at their cost. You just heard a, a portion of Ukraine on Fire, the fascinating and just really intense documentary produced and featuring Oliver Stone, but also uh, directed by Igor Lepotnok. And in that clip and in the next piece I'll play, you we're very privileged to hear the words of late award-winning journalist Robert Perry, founder of Consortium News, speaking on this documentary which really tells the story that you're not hearing in corporate media right now about really the history of Ukraine. And that's why we're playing it, because unless you really understand the relationship between the United States with Ukraine, even going back as far as after World War II, and especially after the breakup of the Soviet Union, you're not going to really understand right now. Uh, what's happening right now. You're not going to understand the forward creep of NATO up, right up to Russia's border, especially as, you know, today, this week, people are, are marking the 60th anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Well, this is Russia's Cuban Missile Crisis. I think you'll hear Robert Perry talk about, you know, we didn't tolerate missiles on our border or right off the coast of Florida. And Russia has its own legitimate safety concerns. And those concerns were just basically dismissed before this war started so that uh, Ukraine would not join NATO and not be used as a staging ground to put long-range uh, missiles, dangerous weapons, maybe even nuclear weapons right on Russia's border. So think about that. Think about that as you listen to the movie, these excerpts of the movie. Let's go to the next part of Ukraine on Fire. Ukraine's parliament has voted for the new speaker of the assembly to become interim president. Alexander Turchinov called on lawmakers to form an interim government by Tuesday. These latest developments follow the dismissal of President Viktor Yanukovych on Saturday. And they removed Yanukovych not following the constitutional procedures for impeachment. The parliament of Ukraine consists of 450 deputies. The constitution of Ukraine requires at least a three-fourths majority to vote. In other words, 338 votes in favor of the impeachment. But only 328 deputies voted yes. The U.S. State Department almost immediately said this was a legitimate government, and that was part of this effort to get regime change. Instead of trying to find some way to revive the February 21st agreement, or maybe you could bring back Yanukovych in some titular way. That became not a possibility anymore. Then you had eastern Ukraine resisting, you had Crimea wanting to break away, and things rapidly escalated. The situation in Crimea is being presented as a, a Russian invasion. And again, nobody who looks at this seriously and looks at the poll numbers, some of the poll numbers done by the U.S. government agencies themselves, showing that the people of Crimea preferred being part of Russia. In the U.S. news media, it has all been presented as the Russians invaded. They then staged a sham election with people with guns at their backs. Somehow they faked the ballot boxes to get 96% approval for uh, rejoining Russia. The idea of a referendum in Crimea is uh, just quite simply unconstitutional. It does raise questions on whether this vote really is free and fair, especially given the heavy military presence in Crimea right now, Errol. So that's how it's been sold to the American people. The reality is very different. The atmosphere here certainly is electric. Thousands of people who've gathered in the capital Crimean city of Simferopol, all of this following a referendum held last Sunday in which the majority of people here overwhelmingly voted in support of being reunited with Russia. As long ago as 1804, Sevastopol's naval base became the main military port of the Russian Empire on the Black Sea. 
During the Second World War, the heroic defense of Sevastopol lasted almost a year and took hundreds of thousands of lives. Therefore, the naval base in Crimea has a legacy of historical pride for the Russian Black Sea Fleet, as well as being of huge strategic importance. Those of us alive back then remember when there were Soviet uh, missiles put into Cuba, how frightened Americans were and how angry, and how we almost went to uh, a nuclear confrontation over having weapons of that kind of destruction placed that close to the United States. If the United States considers Cuba to be in its backyard, then Crimea lays at Russia's doorstep. In early spring of 2014, eastern Ukraine was also buzzing with protests against the new authorities in Kiev. This region, with the population close to Russia geographically and culturally, feared that the ultra-right leanings of the newly formed government would bring neo-nationalism to their lands. And they had their reasons. The status of the Russian language in Ukraine has been a stumbling block for many years. Implementing Russian as a second state language was one of the main campaign promises of President Viktor Yanukovych. In 2012, the Yanukovych government passed a law making it the second official language in the southern and eastern parts of Ukraine, the areas where the Russian-speaking population makes up a majority. Ukrainian nationalist groups initiated massive protests opposing the law. An observing viewer might see some familiar faces there. On February 23, 2014, the very next day after the regime change, the new government voted for an annulment of the official status of the Russian language. And even though later this decision was vetoed by the acting president, Alexander Turchinov, it still sent a message, and a powerful one. This alarmed the Russian-speaking cities of eastern Ukraine, and people took to the streets to show their disagreement. In response, pro-Maidan groups conducted their own demonstrations. When the two parties would meet, it was always tense, and eventually it led to tragedy. One person died and over 50 people were wounded in clashes during a pro-Russian march protesting the new government in Kiev. On April 6th, the Crimean scenario began repeating in eastern Ukraine, where protesters seized government buildings. And the next day, April 7th, they proclaimed Donetsk People's Republic. Kiev replied by announcing the beginning of an anti-terrorist operation in eastern Ukraine. By that time, the international media was screaming about a Russian invasion in Ukraine. Russia could now be on the verge of invading Ukraine. But strong words stayed only in the media. The Ukrainian authorities never announced a warlike situation. Why? IMF cannot give money to countries engaged in ongoing war. Petro Poroshenko. Too much money was already invested in Ukraine to stop halfway. We've invested over $5 billion to assist Ukraine in these and other goals that will ensure a secure and prosperous and democratic Ukraine. Obviously, the funds had to keep coming, and the conflict had to keep going. Getting more and more bloody and deadly. As parties from both sides, were using more sophisticated and lethal weapons. The world seemed too busy welcoming this new democracy in Kiev to notice what was being done as it spread its wings over the country. Many in southern Ukraine had been viewing the revolution with concern. and an anti-Maidan movement formed in the city of Odessa in early January 2014. 
The protesters set up their camp in front of the Trade Union House, a building which would soon become a monument to a massacre of its own. It's difficult to overestimate the importance of Odessa. It is strategically located on the Black Sea, and it's Ukraine's largest seaport. It's not surprising that Ukraine's new authorities were watching the situation unfolding there with growing alarm. More and more of Odessa's people were joining the anti-Maidan movement at the same time as events in eastern Ukraine were heating up. The new Ukrainian government didn't have the power to wage war on too many fronts. If Odessa were to join the growing uprising in the eastern regions, it would seriously complicate the situation. This rebellion had to be extinguished immediately and at any cost, and that cost was high. On May 2, 2014, Soccer fans flocked to the center of Odessa city for the Ukrainian championship match. Surprisingly, a great number of these fans who descended into Odessa just the night before also turned out to be fighters from the Maidan self-defense units, along with members of radical organizations from all parts of Ukraine. These fans, masked, armed, and shouting nationalist mottos, began disturbances in the center of the city as they marched to the anti-Maidan tent encampment, where they attacked. The anti-Maidan protesters sought shelter in the trade union house, but it was a trap. Maidan supporters started throwing Molotov cocktails into the building until it was engulfed in flames. People burned to death inside, or, trying to escape, jumped from the windows. Although a fire station was less than a mile away, it took almost half an hour for firefighters to arrive. When they finally did, the damage had been done. But here's an intriguing fact. Just a few days before those dreadful events, a messenger from Maidan, Andriy Peruby, made a visit to Odessa. It's an interesting coincidence that some of the people he met with in Odessa were seen at the scene that fateful day. But not everyone was mourning. On the popular political talk show, Schuster Live, the news about the people burnt alive in Odessa was welcomed with a long round of applause. On its Facebook page, the right sector announced the events of May 2nd, a proud moment in national history. An official investigation into this sad event has been going on now for nearly two years, and it's yet to reach a conclusion. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam, and this is the third week of the show for this month when we present the F word on fascism. And as our listeners know, our original touchstone for this series is the statement by 1960s revolutionary George Jackson, who defined fascism as the complete control of the state by monopoly capital. He said that fascism is the last stage of capitalism in the heart of U.S. imperial center, where the relationship between the state and the corporation becomes indiscernible. And, you know, we've had a lot of discussions on that statement over the last several years of doing this series. And we know we have a lot of different 
input, agreeing with the statement, disagreeing with the statement. But I think it's apropos actually right now in the state that the world is in right now to kind of refer back to that statement. So uh, joining me for this discussion is journalist Jacqueline Lukman, editor-in-chief of Lukman Nation and co-host of By Any Means Necessary on Sputnik Radio. Welcome back to the show, Jackie. Thanks so much for having me on again, Esther. Well, the pleasure is all ours, and we're just very grateful that you could join us. So as I said off the air, Jackie, you know, I'm looking at all this madness happening globally, domestically, and, you know, in this hemisphere. So the rhetorical question I came up with is, would Americans recognize that this country is devolving into a fascist state? Or, or maybe we could say, do Americans recognize that this country is devolving into a fascist state? So why don't I just get your top line thoughts on that question for this month? People are still very much under the, the belief that, you know, we live in the greatest democracy in the world that there is no freer country than the U.S., the U.S. of A., and that everything the U.S. government does around the world is done because they are a force for good. And also, you know, those things are absolutely not true, of course. But I think additionally, the fact that people have a very cartoon character, Hollywood movie European-centered understanding of what fascism is, that, of course, Americans don't realize that this country has already devolved into a fascist state and has been for a while. Some people would argue it's fascism by certain degrees, but I don't even see fascism as a matter of degrees. It's Fascism is the curtailing of actual liberty and the repression and brutal control by the state that affects every aspect of our lives. There is the curtailing of actual freedom of the press, curtailing of rights to assembly, curtailing of the ability to express opposition to the government or the state. Those things are already happening in this country. So I'm not sure what degree of fascism people need to recognize that the U.S. is a fascist state. But I think we've been there for a while, Esther. You know, I don't know if you remember when the Canadian scholar who came out with an essay earlier this year warning that the United States could devolve into authoritarian dictatorship by 2025. And I guess timing that to when the next you know, after the next election and it received a lot of attention. But I think it was the first time that many Americans realized how this country might be viewed by other people outside this country, you know, mm -hmm. and this isn't someone from the global South. And so many of our ancestors or our brothers and sisters in the global South have experienced what some people consider really fascism from the United States and other European colonial powers that have practiced, you know, chattel slavery, brutal forms of colonialism and other types of exploitation for centuries. But anyway, that was maybe a first salvo for some people in terms of how this country is viewed by other people. So there are a few articles that I pulled just in terms of trying to prepare for this discussion and referring back to George Jackson's statement about, you know, basically the line between the corporate state and the state being indiscernible. Mm -hmm. I was looking at antiwar.com and they reported on the announcement made by NATO earlier this month that they were planning a 10-year plan to rebuild Ukraine's military and arms industry. And of course, when you talk about rebuilding arms in the military, that just means uh, more money for the military industrial complex. And then I think maybe a week later, uh, this week, there was another announcement that this is the headline. Lockheed Martin gets contracts to replace HIMARS sent to Ukraine. The Pentagon has awarded Lockheed Martin with a $179 million in contracts to replace high mobility artillery rocket systems, HIMARS, and guided multiple launch rocket systems. And so this for me tied into a discussion we've been having recently on the show about what is probably in the range of 
$80 billion, and that's billion with a B, sent to Ukraine, primarily by the United States so far. And this has been a boon for what we call the military industrial congressional complex here. And so while we can't have clean water in Jackson, Mississippi, while we can't still can't have clean water in Flint, 70% of our bridges and infrastructure is crumbling in this country. We have a right-wing challenge to Biden's inadequate plan to help with student debt. But still, even though it was inadequate, we have a challenge by the right wing to give people relief for who are suffering under this mountain of debt just because they tried to get an education. So, you know, we can talk about that more later, but I'm just focusing on this international aspect, the war in Ukraine, the U.S. proxy war against Russia. I think it's really laying bare this indiscernible line between the state and the corporate state. Yeah, especially in this case, when the corporate state are the defense contractors, these are corporations. They're corporations that exist to make weapons. I mean, they may do some other things like provide some type of, you know, non-military, non-DOD kind of support to the civilian government agencies like the Department of Justice and the Securities and Exchange Commission and, and that kind of thing, you know, Department of Housing and Urban Development. But these contractors, they are largely, they make most of their money, particularly the big ones like Lockheed Martin and Northrop Grumman, the ones that everyone knows, they continue to exist by making weapons and weapon systems and other kinds of things and services that support warfare for the Pentagon and for these services that they provide or these bombs that they make or these fighter planes that they build, the Pentagon, the U.S. government gives them these big old contracts that, you know, worth $179 million. $179 million is a lot of money. But in the world of defense contracting, it's actually not, right. you know, a huge amount of money. But just think about how easily the U.S. government has given this additional 180, might as well say $180 million to this private corporation that exists almost solely to profit off of war. And we're still begging this administration, this government for housing relief, for our unhoused uh, brothers and sisters, for actual student loan debt, other than this bait and switch that the Biden administration just did. You know, we're still fighting for a $15 federal minimum wage even though at this point, 10, 15 years after the first fight for 15 hit the streets, $15 an hour isn't enough today to keep up with the cost of living. So when, yeah, when not we to t- mention universal health care, exactly. health care being a hu- human right, you know. Exactly. Right. So when we talk about there is no line between the state and corporation, I think really there, there are two ways to look at that. I think we can look at that from the perspective of there is no line between the state and the private corporate defense contractors, because let's not forget they are private corporations. But then on the civilian, so-called civilian side, we can look at companies like Amazon and Walmart and other large corporations. And we see, as George Jackson accurately said, there's no line between the state and those corporations either, because those corporations use their money and their lobbying power to tell the government, this is the legislation that you are going to pass that's beneficial to our clients, the corporations. So this country, if you're just looking at the line, the dividing line between the government, the state and corporate entities, you see that there is none. As I said, George Jackson was right. This country has been a fascist state for a long time. I think that the figure is more than a trillion dollars. Like once you factor in other departments other than the Pentagon, there are money set aside in agencies other than the Pentagon that really just go to the military industrial complex. And so that tab is something like a trillion dollars a year compared to what we know was 
a small fraction of that for like something like Build Back Better, right? Which was mm-hmm. trounced by Congress, which couldn't pass. And those figures came out and they were over 10 years, something like, you know, three trillion over 10 years. And it was, oh, that's too much money. We Where is it going to come from? How are you going to pay for that? Right. Right. But we're talking about one trillion dollars a year. And the other thing that I'm thinking about is, you know, Julian Assange, you know, who we are fighting for to have released because he's been wrongfully imprisoned as a journalist for just revealing the crimes of of this same industry that we're talking about, really, of the military industrial complex. He's been imprisoned for revealing U.S. war crimes, you know, spending this very money that we're talking about. He described the war in Afghanistan as a wealth transfer, as just a grift by these same corporations, because he saw that these funds were not going to the American people, a wealth transfer from the American people, from the American taxpayer to these corporations. And the other thing is I want to make sure that we call them military contractors and we don't call them defense contractors, right? Because we don't see the, these weapons defending us. As a matter of fact, with programs like the 1033 program, we see them maybe used against us as this surplus military equipment is transferred to these uh, police departments around the country. And we, we've seen veritable tanks on the streets in places like Ferguson and, you know, in Wisconsin or, you know, just I just every time I see real protests by the people, legitimate expressions of free speech, I see like a a military confrontation, you know, more and more. But I want to just take a break right now. And we'll be right back. This is On the Ground. I'm Esther Averam in conversation with journalist and friend of the show, Jackie Lukman. And Jackie, uh, before that break, the ways that we see the country that we're living in um, devolving, well, I say devolving into a fascist state. Many, you and many of the people I speak to just talk about it existing right now as a fascist state. And we were talking about Ukraine and the military, what's happening right now in that proxy war against Russia. But When we look at this hemisphere, to tell you the truth, I mean, it was like a bright spot for me in the news cycle this week when I saw that the letter written by Black Alliance for Peace and other organizations and individuals to pressure the United Nations to not approve any type of intervention in Haiti, you know, had an impact that the fact that, you know, China and Russia on the Security Council were able to object to say, no, we don't approve of any type of U.N. troops or any troops or policing from any individual country going into Haiti to intervene. And it just reminded me of this long history of intervention by the United States in Haiti and other countries right in our hemisphere and how Uh, especially during the Trump administration, you had a more bold kind of open evoking of the Monroe Doctrine again Mm -hmm. as, you know, this horrible colonial imperialist doctrine from the the 19th century that basically said, oh, okay, everything in this hemisphere is our backyard. And, you know, Europe, you stay out of it and we can do as we please. And we know there's this long history of supporting fascists uh, dictatorships and horrible regimes in Chile, who the uh, the murder of tens of thousands of our Chilean brothers and sisters, you know, just murdered. And you see these people kind of lionized by the rising right here in this country when they, they have T-shirts that, that show, you know, leftists being thrown out of helicopters the way the, the Pinochet regime did in Chile. And you have what we did in El Salvador, Nicaragua, 
Honduras even most recently, you know, in terms of the coup during the Obama administration that basically brought to power a narco regime that uh, brutalized the people. So my point is that these recent events in Haiti just kind of are the most recent examples of the United States what I have called in the past exporting fascism to other countries in this hemisphere, but that I've been corrected by, you know, you know, Chairman O'Malley saying, you know, no, that colonialism, that, you know, that repression of people around the globe that came first, you know, Mm -hmm. through slavery, through, through, uh, through what was happening even before this country was founded. So anyway, what's your take? Yeah, I mean, you know, I always like to keep top of mind that in the case of Haiti and the case of every country that you mentioned where the U.S. and its Western allies and its international gang of thugs, uh, NATO, let's not ever forget them, have had a hand in sowing unrest and overturning democratically elected people-focused governments. These are all examples of imperialism. They are all the footprints of imperialism that the U.S. and and its Western allies have made around the world, bloody, bloody footprints. And in Haiti in particular, of course, they have always and continue to be made to pay for daring to have defeated their former enslavers and have been the first freed people country of African people in the Western Hemisphere. And France continued to make them pay. And the U.S. has gone right along with that. But now other groups of people have joined in in punishing Haiti for daring to want to be free. Mexico, Canada, the Dominican Republic, and even CARICOM, the CARICOM nations have turned their back on Haiti and they've gone right along with the U.S. plan for what they call a non-UN armed force. And that to me screams NATO, which means that there will be no oversight to basically invade and occupy Haiti again. And I think it's been now nine weeks that the people have been in the streets targeting NGO offices, which are absolutely a part of the imperialist mechanism that serves to control the resources by basically siphoning aid in countries, NGO offices and UN warehouses where they have stockpiled grain and rice and Mm. fuel and the people have repatriated what was theirs from, Mm. you know, these thieves, these international thieves who through their continued imperialist actions on the island of Haiti have caused never-ending, unending suffering, and the people have had enough. So the delay in this vote uh, at the United Nations to deploy this non-UN armed force was really, really welcome. And I think it is an indication that, uh, especially when I listen to the statements from uh, the representatives from Russia and China, it's an indication that at least in other countries around the world, the fight against imperialism, wherever it shows up in the world, is still very vigorous. We in this country, in the belly of the imperialist beast, in the beating heart of imperialism, we have got to really step up our international solidarity with other countries that are fighting against imperialism. We need to partner with Haiti and we need to always unequivocally defend their right and every other country's right to self-determination and to chart their own path in the world against U.S. and NATO aggression. Absolutely. Well, on that note, we have run out of time for our broadcast. But we're going to include the remainder of our conversation on our Patreon channel. That's patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. And I want to thank uh, my guest. Thank you so much, Jackie, for joining me. Thanks so much for having me again, Esther. It's been great. And that's it for today's show. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital on two dozen stations on the Pacifica Radio Network and on all your podcast platforms at On the Ground with Esther Ivarum. Our website and archive of all of our shows is at onthegroundshow.org. 
In addition, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and I'll also link to every show on my Instagram page at Esther underscore Averum, I-V-E-R-E-M. Special thank you to our supporters on Patreon.com at On The Ground Show. The music we played this hour included Fight the Power by Isley Brothers, What Rough Beast by the Burnt Sugar Orchestra, Cloud Blue by Isaiah Rusan, and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace. Thank you.